Uh, good morning, church. Gathered as we are on sofas and dining room tables all around the province and, and stretched even more broadly around the globe. I'm not sure where this morning catches you in the calendar of post-Christmas events, but let me tell you where it catches us. We spent all of yesterday from a little before nine in the morning till in the end almost seven o'clock at night putting it all away. You know that happy sad day when you strip all the greenery, when you haul the tree out to the curb, when you fold up all the decorations and pack up all the nativity sets? Well, for us, that was yesterday. And there's that sort of empty feeling because the house that was so filled with adornment just feels a little bit more hollow. And then you begin to look forward to the next great celebration. And for us, on the Christian calendar... That's Easter. And because we have had a history from time to time in the past of, of celebrating Christmas in July, I thought this year, well, why don't we bring forward some of Easter into January? Uh, that's really the point of what we're going to do for the next eight weeks. Real Hope for the Real World, a sermon series entitled Hope Spring. And it's meant to address people like us who are living in the in-between times. And that applies in all kinds of ways, does it not? Uh, we are the people who live in between. Here we are between Christmas and Easter, but there's a deeper in-between in our lives. We, we live in between the pain of it feels like it's over, so give up, and the hope that in the right hands, something could still be made out of our lives. We are the people who live in between. Human beings are strange creatures in many ways because of our ability to imagine the future. That makes us unlike any other creature that we know of. But just like all the other creatures that inhabit the earth, we share this in common, that unlike God, we are unable to control the future that we imagine. And so we live between today and tomorrow, between the beauty and the flaws, in between the brokenness and the moment when it gets fixed. Over the past 10 months, we have been living between the virus and the cure. And as people, the currency that we treasure the most when we're living between is hope. We are hope-based creatures. We can't not think about the future, but because we can't not think about it, but we also cannot control it, we need hope. You might remember Dante said famously that there's a sign over the gates of hell that says, Abandon hope, all ye who enter. There is something hellish about living without any fragment of hope. We need it. And if ever we needed it, we need it now. A pandemic, isolation, desperation. You've lost your job. You've lost your health. You've lost your spouse. You've lost your home. You're alone. You're afraid. This is the first time that I'm aware of in this church's history that we weren't able to gather together and celebrate Christmas. And we pray that things will be different for Easter, but, but we know there are no guarantees. But we hope. Our need for hope this year 
may in fact be at almost an all-time high. But here's the thing about hope. Let's imagine for a second that you had two friends, two friends who are both willing to speak to you about the future. One of them will tell you everything that you want to hear to make you feel good, but the other will tell you the truth, even though it might make you feel awful. Which one would you go to? It's a tough question, isn't it? I mean, on the surface, we would find ourselves running to the one who makes us feel great. But in the end, wouldn't most of us go to the person who speaks the truth? I was reading an article this week. Do you know that in the midst of the past year, this year with all the turmoil of elections, with all the accusations of vote rigging, with the storming of the U.S. legislature in the past week, You know who had the highest approval rating in America last year? Dr. Fauci. A 79-year-old doctor who lived his whole life in obscurity. Why? Because we want to know what's really happening. And Fauci refused to waver from the truth as he knew it, even when people didn't want to hear it, even when it placed him at odds with the president. It doesn't matter how hopeful the message is if it's not truthful. We have to live in the real world, and so we need real hope, honest hope, sober hope. And so that brings us to this morning. People who go to it, go to a church or who turn into a church message, we often expect to hear a feel-good message, something optimistic, something warm, something fuzzy, something about hope. But this year, you're not sitting in a church building. This year, you're at home. And this year, it feels like there's just way too much at stake to settle for just some sort of temporary mood lifter. So I want to talk to you today, especially if you're looking for hope this year, and you're not entirely convinced that the church is the place to find it. I want to talk to you today, especially if faith in God or belief that a man was resurrected from the dead sounds more like wish fulfillment than reality. I want to talk to you as we inaugurate this series on hope. Christian hope is grounded in an historical event. Christian hope is grounded in an historical event. It's not just giddy flights of fancy. The starting point for our conversation on hope is, in fact, Easter morning. That's why we've been singing about it. It might have felt strange in January to be singing those resurrection songs. That's why our sister Helen prayed so beautifully and powerfully about it. Now, if people... If people struggle with the idea that the resurrection happened, they still have to account for where the idea came from. And then they have to account for how the church that formed around that moment, how the church got started. So often what will happen is people will claim that Jesus' resurrection arose something like this. Maybe after Jesus died, his followers, they felt hopeless, they felt sad, their dreams were crushed. And as they thought back on, as they remembered his life and his teaching, it all was just so vivid to them. 
It felt like his spirit was still there, that he was still with them. And over time, that feeling, it kind of morphed into the legend of resurrection. And people back in the ancient world, they were gullible, they were pre-scientific, so they just believed it. Why? Because it made them feel good. I think if you were to ask the average secular person today, that is probably how they would account for the myth, as they would call it, of the resurrection, for the rise of the Christian church. Sigmund Freud famously critiqued faith, not just Christian faith, but all faith, as mere wish fulfillment. But it's that idea, it's that notion that makes the popular account for resurrection kind of impossible to map on the actual events of the first Easter morning, because for them it was anything but a warm, fuzzy, feel-good event at all. Let's try this as a starting point. In our day and age, in a largely secular, a largely temporal culture, one of the big questions for folks is this. Is there, in fact, life after death? And very often people will think that that's the main point of the Easter story. That the Easter story is about proving that, yes, there is life after death, so we don't have to fear dying. And yeah, that may be true. But that's not how Easter was experienced by people on the day the resurrection first happened. Not at all. In fact, on the day that it happened, according to all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, belief in the resurrection of Jesus didn't lessen people's fears, it increased them. In the Gospel of Mark, the women, they see the empty tomb and they're told by a messenger from God that Jesus is risen. And they ought to go and tell the disciples. And here's their response. Mark 16, verse 8. Trembling, bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. And they said nothing to anyone. Why? Because they were afraid. By the way, that's actually the last verse in the Gospel of Mark. Not much of a warm, fuzzy ending at all, as it turns out. In Luke's gospel, we're told that at the empty tomb, the frightened women were bowed down with their faces pressed into the earth. Why? They were terrified. Even after Jesus appeared to Peter and to his disciples, the Bible says they were startled and they were afraid. In fact, the gospel of John goes on to say that even after the disciples had seen Jesus, believed that he was risen, they were still hiding in a room behind locked doors. Why? Fear. One of the great New Testament writers of our generation, he notes, as a, as a supplementary resource, if you would like to do a little bit of deeper thinking or reading uh, as we go through this series, N.T. Wright wrote a fabulous little book called Surprised by Hope. And it's referenced there along with a video guide that's available through Right Now Media and small group discussion resources. We recommend it highly. But here's what Wright said. He said it's extremely strange and extremely interesting that at no stage do the resurrection narratives in the Gospels mention the future hope of the Christian. 
In other words, not one single person on Easter Sunday responds to the resurrection by, of Jesus by saying, Hooray! All of my existential worries about death have been solved. My wishes for the afterlife have been granted. I have nothing to be afraid of anymore. Not at all. It's only much later, decades later, in the New Testament, that we see the idea that Jesus' resurrection means hope for us as well. Hope for our resurrection as well. And later on, we get these unforgettable words from the Apostle Paul. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, 55, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O grave, is your sting? But those reassuring words, they weren't spoken on that first Easter morning. On the first day, on Easter day, All they knew was this, that Jesus was resurrected. And for them, that meant that he was vindicated. That his teaching was true. That his identity was validated. It meant that the movement that he started wasn't over. But initially, on the first day, that's all that they knew. And for them, it meant more work. For them, it meant more danger. And we see this. We see it in the Gospel of Matthew where it says, on the very first day of the resurrection, Matthew 28, verse 8, says the women, the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid and filled with joy, fear and joy. And they ran to tell his disciples. Why joy? Joy because somehow Jesus was alive, but afraid because it meant they had work to do, risky dangerous work. Women, you go tell the same Romans who just killed me. Tell them it didn't take. Tell them that the movement is still going. Tell them our capacity to suffer and love hasn't nearly been exhausted. Tell them they're going to need more crosses. It's why the response of Jesus' followers on that first day was this combination of joy and terror. Christ is risen. This is great. Oh, no. The tomb is empty. Praise the Lord. Oh, no. What's, what's next for us? And for some of them, even, we got to get out of here. Easter meant they had work to do. You see it in almost a comical way. When the risen Jesus comes to a weeping Mary Magdalene at the tomb. The story goes like this in John chapter 20, verses 16 and 17. Jesus says to her, Mary, she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said, don't hold on to me. I've not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them. Kind of an unbelievable little moment. He shows up in the life of this weeping woman and says to her just the one word, Mary. And she's stunned. Jesus is alive, praise the Lord. She wants to hug him. She wants to embrace him, absorb it, take it all in. But look at his response. Mary, don't be a clinger. Mary, you've got work to do. Mary, as of this moment, you're the whole church. In that moment, Mary was the church. Go spread the word. I'm alive. Be the church. I don't want to dwell on this too much, but 
But here's the idea. Whatever else you may think that the gospel accounts of the resurrection are about, understand this. They were not. They were not the story of people getting their wishes for immortality fulfilled. For that first generation of Jesus' followers, it was the story of a people who were stunned against all their expectations with the conviction that Jesus is somehow alive but also realizing that if they took that to heart and lived that out, it would have enormous personal cost for them. The most logical reason why they believed Jesus was alive is that Jesus was alive. The resurrection was an earth-shattering, history-altering event. And it forced the disciples to understand the meaning of Jesus' life and of his death in a completely new way. The resurrection may have happened overnight, but their understanding didn't come nearly that quickly. So the initial message of the resurrection on that first Easter day was not, Christ is risen, now you have immortality. It was, Christ is risen, now you have a costly and risky purpose for your life. So folks, we're, we're going to launch this series on hope. And the central theme of Christian hope, many people don't quite understand this, the central theme of Christian hope is not, will my future be pleasant? It's not even, will my future be unending? Christian hope answers the question, does my life have meaning. You have to have meaning to live. I mean, meaning is it's not an optional thing in human life. It's like, it's like spiritual oxygen. You can't survive without it. But we know that meaning is only ever devised from, from a larger context. The meaning of present events in human life is mostly a matter of what comes after them. We don't know it yet. Meaning always works that way. We know it works that way with language. You have to have context to know what any given word means. It's why so often we'll pause in Scripture and look at a word and try and understand what did it mean in that context. Think about our own context. Think of a a simple word like the word date. Is date a noun? Is it a verb? It depends on the context. That's why English is such a brutal language to learn. My colleague uh, in a Portuguese-speaking church used to say he was convinced English was the language of heaven because it would take all eternity to learn. But The idea, though, is you cannot determine the meaning of the word without context. When I was in school, my teachers would say, now, put today's date up in the top corner of your paper. In that case, it's a noun. For New Year's Day, my family made me a date cake. In that case, it's an adjective. Girls used to say to me, I don't want to date you. Let's just be friends. In that case, it's a verb. The verb of despair. (laughs) The idea, though, is that meaning is only determined by the larger context. You have to read the whole sentence, then the whole paragraph, And then the whole book. 
It's the same way with the events of your life. Somebody breaks up with you. Your admission to college is rejected. The doctor reads out the troubling diagnosis. Only with time, only with context, you understand the full meaning of those events. Every life by itself is an unfinished sentence. And our lives have these, these fragmentary feelings to them. And we wonder sometimes as we look at them at particular moments, what does it all mean? Does it mean anything? And it doesn't help. I think that the dominant story of our day, the dominant secular view, is that it probably doesn't. It probably doesn't mean anything at all. You're probably just a random blob of tissue in an accidental cosmos in a nanosecond of time. And it doesn't mean anything. One of the great, though controversial, thinkers of the 19th century was a man named Friedrich Nietzsche. And he talked about this way of looking at the human condition. And he said, and it's unforgettable the way he phrased it, he said, in some remote corner of this sprawling universe, twinkling among countless solar systems, there was once a star on which some clever animals invented knowledge. It was the most arrogant, most mendacious minute in world history, but it was only a minute. And after nature caught its breath a little, the star froze And the clever animals had to die. And it was time, too. For although they boasted of how much they had come to know, in the end they realized that they had gotten it all wrong. They died, and in dying they cursed truth. Such was the species of doubting animal that had invented knowledge. Such is man. It doesn't really help as we think about the topic of hope that that line of thought is so prominent in our day. That there is no larger context to give our lives meaning. There is no story. There is no book. There's just this rock with some clever little animals on it. And one day when nature catches its breath and the stars freeze or the universe implodes back in on itself... All those clever little animals will die and nothing will have mattered at all. And the final word will just be, it's over. Fold it all up and throw it away. In our house, we have have different kinds of dishes. We have the everyday dishes. Um, We have the special china I know it's special because it's locked away in the china cabinet and usually I have to be supervised when I'm taking it out. And then there's paper plates. And we don't use them very often. We, we use them this year on Christmas Eve because nobody wanted to stay up late and do dishes. But here's the thing with the fine china. You take it, you take care when you use it. You wash it. You make sure it's impeccably clean. You carry it and you place it gently inside its location in the cabinet. It's precious. And you know it. Here's the thing with the paper plate. 
when you're done with it, you just throw it away. I think we live in a generation of people who become convinced that they are paper plates. The thing is, God never made anything except fine china. It's one of the things that Jesus was trying so hard to teach. He taught that your life has meaning. He taught that you can know this is true. It has meaning because you are an idea formed first in the mind of God and you are loved by God. And that understanding, the life and teaching of Jesus, all of that was vindicated in the resurrection. And what that meant for Jesus and for his followers is that the story of your life, as haphazard as it sometimes feels, can be addressed by fixing it in the larger story of who God is and what he's doing in the world, a story of love and grace that is written not over the course just of several decades, but, but over a span of eternity. Maybe think of it this way. We, we hunger for food. That doesn't prove that food exists, but it would be strange if hunger emerged in a universe without food. We thirst for water. And that alone doesn't prove that water exists, but it would be odd for thirst to emerge if there were nothing to drink. And we hunger for meaning. And while that doesn't prove that meaning exists, wouldn't it be strange if we hungered for meaning in a meaningless universe? Jesus says, your story can be fixed by setting it in the larger story of God's love and grace and forgiveness. We know that Jesus' life and and his teachings provoked a lot of controversy, and eventually he was killed for it. And for a time, it looked like, like he was just one more clever little animal on the rock. But then came Sunday morning, then came resurrection, and the rock gets rolled away. And to their astonishment, Jesus' followers found themselves having to go back over everything that he said and did and taught to understand the meaning of his life by situating it now in the larger story of this one earth-shattering event. I think one of the great surprise-ending movies of all time is called The Sixth Sense. You know that film? Bruce Willis, if you've never seen it, he plays a psychologist working with a little boy. The boy is terrified because he claims that he's seeing dead people and the people don't know that they're dead. And Bruce Willis, with wisdom and compassion, he saves the little boy. He teaches him that his life has purpose, that there's meaning to what he's seeing. There's meaning to his fears. And of course, spoiler alert here, Turn down the volume. The movie's over 20 years old now, but uh, Bruce Willis doesn't realize that in fact he himself is one of the dead people the boy is seeing. 
And as you're watching the movie, when that secret is finally revealed at the end, it's like your head just explodes. And it was brilliant because anybody who saw the movie once immediately had to go back and watch it a second time. And the second time through as you watch, every scene, every line of dialogue, every moment looks and feels different, has a deeper significance because this time you know the secret that he's already passed through death. And by the way, if you've never seen the movie, you don't need to bother now. I just gave you the whole thing and you've saved yourself four hours because you have to watch it twice. Yeah. For the disciples, it was kind of like that. After the resurrection, they had to go back and they had to replay everything that Jesus said and all that he did, but especially, especially the cross. The cross that had looked like the triumph of hatred and despair. That's what it meant on Friday. That's what it felt like on Saturday. But on Sunday... On Sunday, the cross gets placed in this new larger story of resurrection and life and God and everything changes. On Sunday, they saw the meaning. Jesus wasn't the victim. He was the victor. On Sunday, they saw love wasn't defeated, that love won. On Sunday, the tomb was emptied and the cross was filled, but this time it's filled with grace and beauty and forgiveness and power, so much so that it has become by far the most famous and inspiring symbol in all of history, as Jesus knew it would, because it's true. In the right hands, what looks like flaw and failure can be the most beautiful part of something God is doing. Now, what this means for you is that you are so much more than just a clever little animal waiting for the star to freeze. Just clenching your teeth and trying to make it through the days of your life. Jesus' friend Peter wrote these words. This is 1 Peter 1, verse 3. He said, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. For in his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. A living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's not just hope. It's not just any hope. It's living hope. Hope has a name. The name is Jesus. And the resurrection, which has already come to Jesus, is coming soon to a theater near you. So here's what we're going to do. Every week in this series, we're going to learn some hope-building strategies. We're going to learn what it means to cultivate a living hope. But we're going to start this week where those early disciples had to start. We're going to start with the act of surrender. If I surrender my life and my will to him, if if I follow him and if I die to my ego, paradoxically, it's then that I too get born into this living hope. And the story of my life gets swept up in the larger story of God. And it has meaning. So here's the question that I want to leave you with. What are you putting your hope in? What are you putting your hope in? 
Is it a vaccine? Is it your retirement savings? Is it the increasing value of your home? Is it the wide eyes of your beautiful grandchildren? Is it something you could lose? Because if it is, your life will never be secure. We all place our hope somewhere. But is it something that could be lost? There was an article last year about how billionaires are constructing bunkers to shelter themselves and their families in until the danger of the virus will pass. One of them is a 13,000 square feet bunker with a shooting range, a bowling alley, a movie theater, a gym, and a greenhouse. The builder had this unforgettable quote. He said, so many people procrastinate. The time to buy a bunker is when you don't need it, not when you do. The silver lining of COVID is that it's a wake-up call to the world of just how fragile our existence is. So go buy that bunker. That way you can go right on bowling and watching Netflix while the world goes to hell, I guess. That's one kind of hope. Hope in your resources and the intelligence to wait out the virus, knowing that eventually all those clever little animals up there are going to die. There's another picture of hope. Hope that comes from one of the other big stories of 2020. I'm afraid a story that, that quickly is becoming forgotten. This is a picture of a group of women in Syria, one of the most hellish places on earth right now. They've laid out a feast of love with what little they had on a carpet in the middle of the bombed out rubble of what used to be their city. And they've invited others to join them. Jesus were here. I, I somehow have a hard time believing he'd be bowling in a bunker. I think he'd be there preparing a feast on a carpet in the rubble. Where are you going to put your hope? The beginning of a new year and this new series, I want to give you a chance to decide that right now. If you're ready to belong to Jesus, to name him as your hope, I'm going to invite you just to close your eyes right now, right there in your living room or your kitchen, your bedroom, wherever you are, whether you're alone or whether you have people around you. I'm going to invite you to offer this prayer of surrender to Him. You can just pray this with me. Say, Jesus, I don't understand everything, but today I surrender my life to You. And I'm grateful that you would die on a cross out of forgiving love. I ask you to forgive my sins and give me a new story. I ask you from this day forward to become my forgiver, my guide, my master, and my friend. Amen.